The title of the sermon today is What God Does With Sin, and I think it's fitting to open with just a reminder that our God is not a God of confusion. As we're going through these prophecies, there's eight prophecies in the beginning of Zechariah. We're looking at the sixth one and the seventh one today, and it looks really confusing. So I think it's fitting to have this reminder up front that our God's not a God of confusion. As we work through these, um, I thought of 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth about prophecies among some other things, and he says this, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I think that it's good to be reminded of this because when Pastor Lance messaged me earlier this month and asked if I would preach Zechariah 5 this week, I said, sure. And then I went and I read the passage and instantly regretted that decision. No, I read the passage, and, and, and I read it, and my first thought was, I have, I have no idea what that means. Like, I've been in ministry nearly 25 years. That doesn't happen a whole lot. You get something, you're like, oh, we can run with that. There's nothing to run with here. These are crazy visions. And, and so I read it again, but, you know, slowly this time. And my next thought was, I still really have no idea what this means. And as I stand here before you this morning, I have no idea what this means, and I wish you the best. No, I'm kidding. We, we did some work this week. We did some work this week, and we're going to dive in. Um, I I was reminded of what Pastor Kai said um, at the intro to this whole series. He said that it's good to have to dig into the Word. You know, sometimes we're presented with sermons where kind of all the work is done, and here's, you know, your main points. And we'll certainly have some points this morning, but um, we need to lean in together to do the work of digging to find the treasure that's intended for us from the God of peace. And if ever there was a chapter in Scripture that's a good chapter to be preaching on when the children are in the service with us, this is not the one. So um, so a a couple pointers, kiddos, as we go in. There's a lot of crazy stuff in these two visions, and so I want to encourage y'all, write down things you hear repeated. If you hear repeated phrases or repeated words, write those down. And kids, as we're going through it, Keep an eye on like what God is doing. When you see God act and you see him speak through the angel of the Lord, write that down. And also, if you have any questions, get ready, parents. Write those down, and you can talk to your parents about them afterwards. So just a little guidance as we go in. So let's dive into the first two verses of chapter 5 of Zechariah. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Doesn't that just move you? Isn't that riveting? What do you see? A flying scroll. Okay, cool. Um, So a a few things. There's a context for this vision that we have to kind of climb into. So Zechariah has a background and a context, and the prophets sort of have themes that go with them. And so as as we look at this, You see, Zechariah was away, and he's coming back to get more prophecy from the Lord. And he is a prophet during the time of the people returning from the Babylonian exile, and the the plan is to rebuild the temple, but it's not happening, and so he sent an angel of the Lord to speak through Zechariah. So part of our goal this morning is to import our senses and to climb in, as Howard Hendricks would say, and like, what does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? What would it be like for Zechariah? And for us to understand this, we need to, to feel what Zechariah feels. And so the first thing here is that he comes and he, and he lifts his eyes to, to begin another vision. You see him looking up, and he hears from the angel of the Lord, and you see the presence of a scroll. And at first, that doesn't seem significant. But the presence of a scroll for a person who is prophesying on behalf of God's people would have been sort of alarming. It would have brought a sense of dread to Zechariah. So in, in Jeremiah 36, there's a scroll from Jeremiah to King Jehoiakim that warns of impending disaster because of his sin. In Ezekiel 2, one of Ezekiel's opening visions includes a scroll with words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So as we climb into this, we need to understand and try to feel that dread that Zechariah would have had. He's, okay, it's prophecy time again. Oh man, there's a scroll. And there were a couple of examples that I thought of that would help us to feel that way. Has anyone ever been speeding or driving with an expired registration and you pass a police officer? Liars, right? Let's see, come on. Yeah, and so that feeling of dread, I, 
I did it this morning on the way here to preach about not breaking the law, okay? So full, full disclosure from, from the preacher guy. So I did it on the way here. And what happens? I topped the hill, and I was a little behind, and oh, I better hit the brakes. And all of a sudden, you like take on the persona of a fugitive, right? You're like, hands at 10 and 2, because that's how I always drive. Uh, look normal. Um, I'm not going back to prison. They're not, the law is here. Like, it's a weird dynamic, and there's this sense of, of dread. And the funny part about that is, You weren't really concerned about breaking the law until you maybe got caught, right? Like, you weren't concerned at all. Like, that registration's been out for like four months. But then, oh, oh, there's the law. That's kind of what he would have felt as he looked up and said, oh, man, there's a scroll. Or another one would be, who in this room is troubled when I say the words, wooden spoon? Can I see a show of hands to see kind of what we're working with here? Okay. So I understand, you know, in in our day and time now, spanking is a fairly controversial thing. When I was growing up, it was not controversial at all. Very welcomed, done often. And so um, I have, I'm the oldest of four boys, so I have three little brothers, and it was not uh, a crazy occasion for us to disobey our parents from time to time and fight with each other. And so um, there were those times where we'd be in another room and we'd be fighting with each other. We'd be way too loud. We'd been told to be quiet a number of times. We wouldn't be getting along. We're tattling. We're, Mom, Dad, Dad, they're doing this. And, and Mom and Dad are getting upset. And then there would be that moment where Mom and Dad, Mom and Dad or Dad, one or the other, sometimes both, they call you by your full name, right? That sense of dread when you hear the full name. Jason Scott Sutton. Oh, Dang. He, she doesn't just want me to do something. I'm in trouble. And, and so we all go in there, and the wooden spoon's sitting on the table waiting for us, right? There's a sense of dread that comes from that. And side note, if it was the wooden salad spoon with the hole in the middle, it makes a different sound when it, when it hits, and it feels a little different. But those senses of dread is, is something that helps us to understand Zachariah's m- mood when he saw this flying scroll. Uh, One of the commentators, Philip, says, a scroll likely caused Zechariah's heart to skip a beat. As a prophet representing a generation returning from exile and judgment, a symbol of God's chastisement must have been most alarming. Remember, what he hears from the Lord, the design is he tells it to the people. And so he would have been alarmed in this moment. So for a moment, I want you guys to consider, we got to understand this flying scroll thing. So I want you to consider what it would be like if a random person handed you a small piece of paper, perhaps an index card, that had all of your sins on it. What's that feel like? Someone takes an index card and they hand it to you and it has all your sins and and you open it and you begin to read it and you're like, I thought some of these sins were hidden. No one knew about that. I just want you to consider what it would be like if someone gave you that index card and keep that in the back of your mind as we explore what this flying scroll is. Now look at verse 3. After he said, what do you see? I see a flying scroll. I answered, its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. So a cubit is foot and a half, 18 inches. So what this flying scroll was is a 30 by 15 flying sin billboard, okay? Okay? That's the best way to think about it. These are some weird prophecies, and that's all I got for you. It's a 30 by 15 flying billboard of sin. And it says in verse 3, it says that the scroll is a curse. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So we know that the scroll is big, The scroll is a curse. On one side is the Eighth Commandment. Are we all familiar with the Ten Commandments? Very important foundation as we talk about the law. So on one side is the Eighth Commandment of don't steal, and on the other side is the Ninth Commandment of don't swear falsely. And what we see is that the curse of the scroll is represented by the law. So those two particular sins that are, that are mentioned, those particular commandments when they're broken, one, the, the sin of theft is sin against one another, right? So that's how some of our sin is. And then the sin of swearing falsely is directly against God. And here's what we need to see this morning. In James chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, 
also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery but do not murder, you have become, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, if someone commits adultery but they don't commit murder and they try to sort of justify themselves by saying, but I didn't commit murder, you don't get a gold star on your chart. You're a transgressor of the law. And so what we know God is doing is he's going to send this flying scroll. It's going to go out through the land. And the only way that that scroll is not a curse is if you have perfectly kept every part of the law given by God. So you can begin to, as Zechariah thinks, this thing's about to start flying out. You can imagine what that must have felt like. He knew what would be the finality for the people. Jesus clarifies the realities of his kingdom in Matthew 5. You know, he says, it says do not commit murder. But I say, if you have anger in your heart against your brother, you're liable to judgment. And then he says, it says do not commit adultery. But I say, if you have lust in your heart, you're liable to judgment. He says, you've heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your, neighbor, love your neighbor and love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus is making it very clear what the standard is for his kingdom. And this reality that Zechariah is experiencing, I think, can be summed up in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see this articulated in this passage. The curse goes out over the face of the whole land for everyone to, uh, to ev- for everyone who's transgressed the law. It paints this picture that, you know, as God is looking down at his people after they've been brought out of the Babylonian captivity and he looks at them, what he finds is that there's not even a pocket of people that, that have remained righteous through this journey. What he finds is that there's not even a remnant that is left somewhere that is, that is righteous, that has kept the law in its entirety. And as I read through that and I was trying to think about what that looked like for Zechariah to know that God's looking down and all he sees is unrighteousness. I was like, that sounds a lot like the pre-flood reality in Genesis chapter 6. That's another time where God's looking down and he's looking to see what's going on with his people. And it says in Genesis 6, verse 5, it says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you wrap your head around that? God's looking down to take a survey, to check and see what is the condition of his people. And God doesn't just see the actions that are happening. God is looking down and he sees their hearts. But he doesn't just see their hearts. He sees the thoughts of their hearts. But he doesn't just see the thoughts of their hearts. He sees the intention of the thoughts of their hearts. And as God looks and he sees the intention of the thoughts of the hearts of every man and every woman, what he sees is that those intentions were only evil continually. No shred of righteousness. So the condition before the flood was a lot like the condition here in the time of Zechariah. God's looking down and there's a scroll of judgment that's going to come through and everybody's guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. Brings us to our first point of the morning. All sin is seen by God. All sin is seen by God. I want you to go back to that small piece of paper that someone handed you with all of your sins on it. That small piece of paper that has even the sins that maybe you thought were hidden, maybe they didn't know anything about it. And now what I want you to picture is that that little index card is blown up to 30 feet by 15 feet. How do you feel about that? Vulnerable? Guilt? Shame? 30 feet by 15 feet. And it's not that it's just blown up and it's there. It follows you around. How would that make you feel? Like, we're going to go to church somewhere different next week. This is bad news. How does that make you feel? It does, it's not just huge and it doesn't just have your sins on it that condemn you and say that's what you're guilty of. But it follows you around in the air. 
All sin is seen by God, but I think often we aren't troubled by that because we just don't think about it. In fact, I would venture to say that maybe the large majority of our sins are less conspicuous and maybe more secretive, making them feel like they're hidden. But we have a reminder this morning that God sees all sin. Or perhaps because our, our society tries to rename what is sin and what is not sin, and even maybe even push back against the concept of sin, that we become comfortable with our sins. The people of God during the time of Zechariah had very clearly become comfortable in their sin. I think there's a reminder in the middle of this vision that God establishes what is sin. Do we all hear that? God establishes what is sin. Culture doesn't establish what is and is not sin. We don't legislate God away. Like just because a law changes, it's like, well, that's legal, so it's not sin anymore. Not true. Romans 14 says anything done outside of faith is sin. So you have to be able to faithfully do whatever it is that you're doing or it is sin. And the reality here is that God defines what is sin. Legislation and law does not change that. Culture doesn't change that. The way you feel doesn't change that. That's what Zechariah is reckoning with. God sees all sin, and he's the one who named it through his law, which is a curse that's flying around as a big dang billboard. That's the situation here. So I want to use the projector screen this morning to really help us get this. We're going to use it as an illustration of what Zechariah must have been seeing and feeling. And I want you to consider your sins. Imagine that the screen is a flying billboard that follows you around making your sins known. Perhaps it's theft, as was mentioned by the Eighth Commandment. Maybe you're dishonest in your business dealings. Both of those sins are mercantile sins about businesses. Just, we just kind of kept more than we should have. Um, our, our, our measures aren't quite right. It's no big deal. No, that's theft. So maybe it's theft. Maybe it is swearing falsely. You give your word, maybe in the name of the Lord, but it doesn't mean anything because you're not being truthful. I mean, imagine your index card. What's on yours? This is your sin scroll. Perhaps it's lust. Perhaps it's pride, anger, doubt, fear, discontentment, the sin of a critical spirit, unforgiveness, really any, any form of unrepentance. And imagine if right now in this service you start to feel a little uncomfortable with this notion and you think to yourself, I'm out of here. And maybe, you'd, maybe you decide to get up and leave because all this sin talk is making you uncomfortable. But, but as you leave, the screen leaves with you. It follows you through the back doors, displaying all your sin, follows you down the hall, out the doors, through the parking lot, and you get in your car thinking, oh, I'm in my car. But it hovers above your car, and it just goes with you. Hate, lust, arrogance, pride, just, it just goes with you, letting everybody know what your sins are. You think to yourself, i got to go home. i got to go hide. Sounds like Adam and Eve saying, we got to find a tree. And then they go hide behind a tree that God spoke into existence with his words. I think he knows where you are, Adam and Eve. And so you think, i got to go home. i got to hide. And what happens? Look at verse 4. It says, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. It follows you into your house and it consumes it. 
It takes a lot of heat to consume timber. It takes an exponentially extraordinary amount of heat to consume stone. It brings us to our second point of the morning, that all sin is judged and punished by God. All sin is judged and punished by God. That's the way it works in the courtroom, right? What follows a guilty verdict? Punishment. I sentence you to blank. God in his infinite holiness and wisdom is telling Zechariah that this sin problem will come into the homes of his people and it will consume them. It is a warning. This sin problem, Zechariah, will go into every home. There's no one who is righteous. And it will go in there and it will consume them. That is the nature of sin. It is corrosive. It is consuming. You can't ever get enough of it when it's what you want. And it will consume your people. Both timber and stones and all the inhabitants of the home. You know, there's a, there's a phrase we have that I think is good in one way. It's, it's you know, hate the sin love the sinner. But at the end of time, it's not just sin that's being punished. It's sinners. The people in hell have faces. And they have names. And they're really receiving what we're seeing here. This is a picture of the wrath of God. I think understanding God's wrath is hard. I was trying to think through, you know, this is perhaps as heavy as it gets, right? And I think it's really hard for imperfect people like us to understand perfect anger. Does that make sense? Like God's anger is perfect. And so when we hear about him pouring his wrath out, sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it because when I pour my anger out, it's not always holy. It's not always perfect. Romans 1.18 helps us with this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If I was to like give you an arrow and say, go put it in the bullseye that lets us to know where God's wrath, what is God's wrath, what's the object of it? The object of God's wrath, the bullseye, how does it work? What is he doing? It is against unrighteousness and ungodliness Every time. And it's against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness every single time because it suppresses the truth. God is passionate about truth. What is Satan called? The father of what? Lies. So you have Satan who's the father of lies who wants to steal and to kill and to destroy. He sees this vision and he cheers. Yeah, guilty. He, he seeks those who are doing well. When you want to do right, it says that evil lies close at hand. And he's, he's characterized as a lion seeking someone to devour. Ruthless and wants evil to go forward and truth to be suppressed. Our God is a God of truth. And unrighteousness and ungodliness suppress truth. And that's why that is the object of his wrath. Do not think that God is like us. He is not capricious. He's not in a good mood one day in a bad mood the next. Like sometimes I show up and you might not know which version of me you're going to get because I can be capricious. I can be moody. Sometimes I don't get mad at things with my kiddos that I should get mad at. And then there's other times that I completely overreact and get far more angry than I should have because of my sin. I try to be a good father, but I'm not the heavenly father. His anger is perfect. It, it's against that which suppresses truth. We know that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And God's pretty passionate about your freedom. He's passionate about his holiness, but, but he... He wants truth to go forward because it's truth that sets us free. And it's truth that puts his glory on display. See, like us, those Israelites returning from the Babylonian exile, they were meant to live as a people different from the world. 
he, he refers to his people as a people of his own possession. That's how he refers to them. And they're meant to live in a way where everything they do and everything they say and the way that they carry themselves is that they are pointing to the greatness of their God. But what happens is they form idols, and and idolatry essentially says, let's take God down, and let's take this thing we're passionate about, and we're going to lift it up, and we're going to worship that, and in the unrighteousness and in the ungodliness, you're pointing people to your idols, and that's where God's wrath comes from. We should be pointing to the Lord. We should be pointing to his glory. We're created differently. They're Our created purpose, theirs like ours, was to live and move in such a way as to perpetually point others to God, to his greatness, to his story of redemption. Our unrighteousness and our ungodliness suppresses the truth about God. And I'm talking about everybody in this room right now. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone sitting in here this morning was conceived in iniquity and brought forth in sin, according to Scripture. As a member of humanity, you are guilty. All of us, because of our sin, deserve God's wrath. When we leave here this morning, what we deserve is that our sin would follow us out and into our homes and consume us as the curse it became through our disobedience. If you wonder, what do I deserve? That's what we deserve. If you struggle with entitlement, that's the kind of thing that brings you down a notch. Imagine if the sermon ended there. Be warm and well fed. Have a nice day. We have low attendance Sunday next week. Imagine what Zechariah must have been feeling, right? I mean, this speaks to us, but we're talking about Zechariah who's looking up, and I just want you to imagine what he would have been feeling in this moment. Like, he is a prophet over the people of God, and it's real people, and he's a man. He's a prophet, but he's also a man. So he's hearing this, this doom. He's hearing this dread that comes from the reality that that scroll, as it flies, it's going to condemn everybody because no one's perfect. Zechariah knew the people that God made him a prophet over. He knew the best parts about them. Right? They're still sinners, but he knew the best parts about his people. He knew their quirks. He knew the names of their children. He knew their history. As he's seeing this thing, he knows, he knows each of their stories. And he knows that as one of them, that he and every one of them are sinners who are undoubtedly to be on the receiving end of this curse. And what I want you to try to picture is, is like, just picture Zechariah, like he comes out and it's time for prophecy and he lifts up his eyes and immediately he sees the scroll and it's like, oh man. And then the story is told of the scroll and it, the judgment that comes from the curse of the law and you can just kind of see, like over the, over the time of this prophecy, you just kind of see his head kind of start to, his eyes come down and you kind of see his, his shoulders fall, probably to the point that, that he didn't even want to really look anymore, like he'd had enough. Like maybe that's how you're feeling right now. Like I get it. I get it. We're, we're sinners. And he's, he's probably in that place where his, his, his eyes are down, his shoulders are down. He's seen enough. And honestly, as, as we sit and we reckon with our sin, we're probably mostly feeling dread. The purpose of this vision is, is to make us feel dread. Zechariah was undoubtedly weighed down with a burden that was far too heavy for him or any man to bear. And all he could do is receive the judgment. There was no out. You don't see him trying to figure it out. Oh, work his way out of it. Make it stop. There was no off button. It was as certain as anything you ever experienced. But look at verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. Now that, not, that might not seem like much at first, but this is a moment of tender mercy from God. Zechariah's head is down. He, he doesn't want to see anymore. And th- that vision's over. That's it. That, that's that vision. 
Death, destruction, and doom for all of us sinners who are absolutely unrighteous. That's the vision. And God says, hey, Zechariah, look, lift your head up, buddy. This is worth seeing. Zechariah, you don't want to miss this next part. And there's a tenderness and a mercy from God here that I think is just so sweet. It's really subtle, but it's sweet. Zechariah, you don't want to miss this. So in 5, he says, The angel of the Lord who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what it is that is going out. And look at verses 6 through 8. And I said, What is it? <laughs> I, I can't imagine that he didn't have sort of a, what? Could it get any worse? What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. He said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. I mean, I want you to import yourself into this situation. And what does that look like? They lift up a lead cover on a woven basket. There's a woman in there. Okay. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket. And he thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Aren't you encouraged? I mean, could it be clear, right? Like, okay, how is this encouraging? Well, one commentator notes, to be sure this prophecy does not mean that we can blame women for our problems. <laughs> Honestly, I was a little bit nervous about preaching this part, because if you take it at face value, and behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket, and he, and he said, this is wickedness. I mean, it, it looks like they're saying wickedness is woman. I'm like, well, Eve's name sounds like evil. You just add a little bit. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But, like, it kind of looks like that. And, I'm, and so I'm new here, so I messaged Pastor Lance. I said, Lance, who's the woman in the basket? He said, I don't know. I think it might be Beth from Yellowstone. <laughs> he might be right. I think it's a fair guess. But here's something that we have to make sure that we get right this morning. The woman in the basket does not represent all women. She represents all wickedness. We have got to see this. This is so important. The woman in the basket does not represent all women. She represents all wickedness. This prophecy is chock full of imagery, and I just wonder, as you pictured this heavy lead top being lifted to reveal this wicked woman, I wonder what you thought that looked like. What were you picturing in your mind's eye? I wonder what face you pictured on this woman. You may have pictured a particular face. You may have pictured like some dark, disfigured female creature, like maybe something you've seen out of a movie, or maybe some like golem-like creature or something. I don't know. But you pictured something, and I just wonder, what did you picture? What did you see when that top was lifted? I think probably the woman looked more like us. Of all the people in this prophecy, we're probably most like her. Apart from Christ, we are depraved, we're enemies of God, we're alienated from the promises because of our sin, and we're destined to be handled by God according to his perfect judgment. I think if you look into that basket, outside of Christ, it's more of a mirror than anything else. But what did you picture? As I considered this evil, right, and I consider like him saying, this is, this is evil. God, see, all sin is seen by God. All sin is judged and punished by God. And I, I've had this thought, have you ever wondered why humanity has made it this far without utterly destroying one another? Have y'all, has anyone ever had that thought? I've had it many times throughout the course of my life. Like, how do we make it this far? Like, with all of the nuclear warheads and all of the depraved hearts, and all of the ways that we can do wickedness to one another. And you couple that with the fact that Jesus has come back already, but not yet completely. And Scripture tells us that during the time between the already and the not yet, that 
the love of many will grow cold and that lawlessness will increase. That's the time you live in. And I often just wonder, like, how do we still exist with all that evil and all that love growing cold and all the lawlessness increasing and all those things? How do we even still exist? And the answer is that there is a limit to evil. And this is good news. There is a limit to evil. It's in a basket. What does that look like? It's in a basket or a measure with a heavy cover. I want you to notice that when the basket was opened by the angel of the Lord, you notice that? Like, all the evil's in the basket? Why are you opening it, right? Don't mess with the basket. It's got a heavy lid for a reason. It's like, don't poke the bear. Like, what are we doing? And and, and notice, but when the angel opens it, there is no fear of evil taking over and running rampant. In fact, Evil is just thrust back into the basket like a criminal being shoved into the back of a squad car. Get back in there. This is interesting, and I think it's encouraging. God has control over evil. You hear that? God has control over evil. He can control it. He can limit it. And he can preserve us through it. But as we see evil completely encompassed within this basket, the big question is, what does God do with evil ultimately? Our sin, all of the wrong in the world, what does God ultimately do with that? And look at verses 9 through 11. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? It's a really important question, because I don't want to go there, right? Where's that basket going? Because I'm going to go the other way. Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it, and when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Insane. What did we just read? Our third point for the morning is this. All sin will ultimately be removed by God. All evil will ultimately be removed by God. Now, if these two women here that are mentioned, if they're angels, it would be the only time in Scripture that angels are not referred to in the masculine form. So if these two women are angels, it would be the only time where there are female angels mentioned in Scripture. So I think it's safe to say that they are exactly as the Scripture says. They are stork ladies. I said it. They're stork ladies. And this is hilarious. Like, right? That's not what you expect. Who should we get to transport the basket that encompasses all the evil of the earth? How about a couple stork ladies with little baby wings? That's bizarre, right? Like this is an unexpected moment. So I I think it's safe to say that they're stork ladies and God's plan to remove the sin from the dwelling of God's people and place it eternally in its new home. You know, his plan isn't to have an army of well-trained warriors suited up for battle. Two stork ladies. That tells you the power that God has over evil. It tells you the nature of things when he comes to remove the evil and establish a new heavens and a new earth. Zechariah asked the obvious question, where are the sork ladies taking the basket of wickedness? And the answer is Shinar, which I didn't hear anybody cheer when I said Shinar, so let's dig into that a little bit too. The answer is Shinar, and here's what is really, really, really remarkable. Shinar is the location of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. You remember the Tower of Babel? That's when the people said, we don't need God. We'll build a tower to heaven. We'll, we'll just keep building. And then God confused their languages, right, so that, so that they couldn't bring all of their evil together and continue to move in that way. And that's why we have different languages today. Shinar is the location of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So where's evil being taken? Shinar. Over in Babylon. 
where the Tower of Babel was. That's the place where the whole world decided that they would work together to defy God by building their own tower to heaven. And because of that, it's really the world's first organized rebellion against God. That's where evil will be taken at the end of time. One commentator, Leopold, notes, Shinar represents the world, generally speaking, as contrasted with the church. It, Shinar, follows the principles of wickedness, and it shall acquire more and more of wickedness. Shinar is indicative of this place where they just cannot get enough of sin and evil and wickedness. The, the, they're suppressing truth at a, at a higher rate than you can even imagine because of all of their unrighteousness and all of their ungodliness. And what's interesting is as we see this lady who's encompassed as evil in this basket being transported over to Shinar, that imagery from Zechariah is picked up in Revelation 17. So we are literally in these crazy visions going from Genesis to Revelation. And look what it says in Revelation 17. Verse 4 shows a woman arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immoralities. This is Babylon. It's this woman who couldn't be more brazen about her sin. She has dressed herself as though she is royal, and she's just walking around with this golden cup full of the abominations and the wickedness as if it is, does anybody want to drink? Just flat wicked. And she had a name on her forehead so everybody could see it. Written, Babylon, the great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Babylon, Shinar, is where sin will be ultimately taken to have, that's, that's your new home. Far away from God's realm. It goes on to say in the next chapters of her, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. And another voice from heaven says, so you hear this this. Fallen is Babylon. She is, she is completely destroyed. It's a place for everything that's evil. That's where that basket is taken. That's the eternal home of it. And then you hear in the midst of that proclamation another voice that says, come out of her, my people. Aren't you glad for that? Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. For she will be consumed by fire and the smoke of her will go up forever and forever. It will not be a temporary fire that just burns it up. It is eternal punishment by fire. Come out of her, my people. I want us to remember that time is a created thing. You ever thought about that? Time is a created thing. And there's a day where time will melt back into eternity, and God will come, and on this earth, Jesus will establish a new heavens and a new earth. And at that time, there, the evil will be removed to this place that we just visited briefly. So I think the important question is, how do we come out of Babylon? Right? When you hear that was come out of Babylon, the wrath of God is being poured out. The punishment is eternal and, and there's guilt. If I'm guilty, how do I get out? If I'm guilty, how do I come out of Babylon? How do we come out of this reality of eternal punishment and step into the reality of eternal blessing in a place that is free from the evil and in the presence of our Heavenly Father? And here's the answer. Not by works, but by faith. Thinking, seems like it would take more, right? No, no. There's no work you can do to fix this problem. How do we come out of Babylon? How do we escape that? Not by works, but by faith. Remember the curse of the scroll coming through, and it just condemns everybody because we're all, we're all sinners? Look at Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So our first point is that all sin is seen by God. The second point is that God will punish all sin. The third point is that all sin, all evil, will finally and ultimately, utterly be removed by God. And the fourth point is that your penalty for your sin will be paid by you or Jesus. Your penalty for your sin, as we sit here this morning, feeling a bit of the dread that Zechariah felt in the, in the displaying of this prophecy, your penalty will be paid by you or by Jesus. Now I want you to consider that flying scroll. Go back to the billboard of sin. Go back to that little index card that had all your sins on it and how it's blown up on a 30 by 15 billboard and go back to that It flies around, bringing guilt, and it brings shame, and it brings punishment, because everyone it encounters is guilty of unrighteousness. And I want you to consider, it's flying around one day, and it encounters this man named Jesus. It kind of glitches a little bit. For some reason, the scroll doesn't have anything to display. There are no sins for which this man, Jesus, is guilty. And Jesus, knowing the curses that this scroll has brought upon generation after generation, and knowing the record of of wrongs that it has kept for every intention, of every thought, of every heart, for sinners through all generations, Jesus knowing this, and Jesus being sinless, snatches that scroll out of the sky. That's how we get out. He snatches the scroll of condemnation out of the sky like someone who might snatch a bill at a restaurant at the end of a meal. And Jesus says, I'll pay it. That debt's mine. I will pay that debt of condemnation and more of that. I will become the curse that they deserve. I'll pay the debt and I'll I'll become the curse. Friends, your penalty for your sin will be paid by you or by Jesus. Those are the only two options. And that is what these two visions are screaming this morning. Tim Keller says that preaching verse by verse keeps you honest because you don't get to skip the hard parts. This would be one of those parts. We can't skip it. We have to reckon with it as a people who are called to be different. Romans 3.23, as we said, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's really good news if you keep reading. That's not the end of it. You keep reading, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a big word that just means wrath absorber. He absorbs the wrath that you deserve. And I want you to notice who puts Jesus forward as a propitiation. It says his father does. His father puts him forward as a propitiation. And you were standing here and he moves you out of the way. And he puts his son there and he pours his wrath out on his son. When Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he paid for your sin. Remember that all sin is punished by God. Your only hope of not having God's wrath poured out on you is for the wrath that you deserve to be poured out on Jesus. And the only way for that to happen, like what do I do? You receive it as a gift. It's a gift of grace. You don't earn gifts. You don't say, okay, I'm going to get my life together and see if we can. No, no, you can't get your life together. You receive grace as a gift, and it changes your life. That's how you get the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, everything that is completely wonderful, beautiful, and utterly opposed to what's in that basket. You get the Holy Spirit as a gift. You confess your sins. You repent. And you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we are not with those who are eternally 
punished, real people with real faces. We put our faith in Jesus because he's the only one that can be the wrath absorber. He's the only one that can snatch the scroll out of the sky. His father's wrath is towards unrighteousness and ungodliness because it suppresses the truth. And as those who receive the gift of grace, my encouragement to you is go and speak that truth. What we've covered this morning is not just a fable. This is not just some story. It's not some obscure Old Testament vision that only really mattered back then. This is really going to happen. Jesus is really coming back. And there really is this crazy thing that anyone would be saved. By grace, through faith, received as a gift. This is a heavy piece of scripture, but leave here encouraged that Christ is mighty to save. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We confess that as we sat with Zechariah and we feel that dread of our sin, we rejoice this morning in, in the redemption that is found in Christ and the change that actually does happen. We're, we're thankful this morning that we can be reminded that people really can change and that our sin problem is not something that we can take care of on our own. And Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We, we cry out for mercy and for grace. And it is a remarkable, scandalous, crazy thing that we can receive it by faith as a gift this morning. Lord, as we continue, as taking the supper, as we continue in worship, I pray that we would respond rightly to the amazing gift of grace that we've been given. And if anyone in here, Lord, is at a place where they, they're not sure about Jesus and they're, they're, they're not sure about this sin problem, I pray that this morning's text brings clarity. We love you, Lord. You are a good father. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.